accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. We're continuing our run-through of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Right now we're up to the episode called The Siege of AR-558, the eighth episode of the seventh season, aired on November 18th, 1998, written by Ira Stephen Baer and Hans Beemler, directed by Weinrich Colby. In this episode, during a supply run to AR-558, Cisco finds the defending Starfleet unit with over two-thirds of the troops dead and the remaining soldiers' morale extremely low. When the Defiant comes under attack, Sisko, Bashir, Dax, Nog, and Quark choose to remain on the planet, which is about to come under attack by a much larger contingent of Jem'Hadar soldiers. We're here with Clay. Clay, how are you? I'm good. Um, My favorite thing in this episode is at the very beginning when Bashir comes in and thanks Vic Fontaine for finding the time to put those CDs, put that music on that little stick. Yeah. Because it, it it's it's like it's like if I tried to burn a CD on my computer and my computer is like yes when I have time come back in three days hey hey what's he called he calls him Polly or something like, He's like hey <laughs> hey buddy how's it go what do you um what do you think of Vic I can Fontaine? do that for you but I'm very busy I'm very extremely busy right now what do you what do you think of uh Vic is kind of a head fake to this episode because his sure. his um presence has nothing to do with anything and it's a totally different tone. Uh, I guess leading into whatever uh, comes next in the episode, which we'll get to. But what what are your thoughts on Vic Fontaine? Um, I've heard a lot of people who really like him, but what what do you think? He's fine. Um, they don't really use him for much. He's just sort of there to be that character. I mean, he's just kind of a background player. Like even this even this episode, he's pretty superfluous. Yes, um, yeah. And I mean, that's fine. You know, I guess it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have much of an opinion. I think he's fun, I guess, but it's not like I don't look forward to seeing him or anything. Yeah, I feel um, I feel he's a little bit odd of a character to have. Yeah. Like he's, um, Especially this late into the show. Right. Have yeah, that. Yeah. So that, that character really feels like a first season character that never really clicks. Right, you know? and then they get rid of him after a couple of years and they're like, or yeah. just forget to write him into scripts anymore. I... I mean, he's clearly just Iris Stephen Bear's love of that kind of music, of like lounge mm-hmm. jazz, sort of brought to life. And I guess he's he's all right. He's not distracting enough where I ever don't appreciate him. And I like the performance and everything like that. It's just, it does feel weird to have characters in real life walking into the holodeck to, to have him do things for them. Yeah, like, that's, it's yeah. a strange holodeck twist, I guess. But. And it, it's it's strange because, especially this one, it it makes it feel like this holodeck program is constantly running, right? Yeah, you know, no one else it's can not. Use it. Yeah, like I don't know who started, who reserved this hall suite, and who put this program in. I guess Rom, but also Bashir showed up to pick up that CD that he burned for him. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a Bashir it feels thing, like right? It's, I think it's a Bashir thing when they when they show him. I think it's Bashir showing the group how great his new program is. So I think he's right. Bashir's product. Yeah. And it just feels like they, the way that they handle it here, it feels like it's just constantly running because people can walk in and out and it's just going. Right, right. No privacy, I guess. But let's uh, let's take a break. We're going to play an audio clip and then we'll come back and we'll break down the siege of AR-558. Let me tell you something about humans, nephew. 
They're a wonderful, friendly people. As long as their bellies are full and their hollow suites are working. But take away their creature comforts. Deprive them of food, sleep, sonic showers. Put their lives in jeopardy over an extended period of time. And those same friendly, intelligent, wonderful people will become as nasty and as violent as the most bloodthirsty Klingon. And the uh, the Vic Fontaine stuff is clearly not what the episode is about because mm. they quickly drop that and they I move. Do, I did want to say my one other thing that I did enjoy is that at least s- someone finally acknowledged how old the music is yeah. and it was him specifically. <laughs> and he's like, who wants to listen to this? It's 400 years old. <laughs> and I think... Uh, Bashir gives him the the right compliment, though. He's like, but you'll bring it to life in a different uh, yeah, vein or something yes. like that, mm-hmm. which is what every singer, every crooner wants to hear, I think. But yeah, it quickly um quickly turns into a very dark, devastating, psychologically uh, affecting episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, I think. It moves fully into Dominion War territory in a lot of ways that some of the best episodes of the later seasons have done. And I think it's all the better for it that they do that. Uh, so what did you think of Siege of AR-558? Um, I liked it a lot. It still felt slightly redundant to me, um, but I think the plus side is they're very good at these episodes, so it didn't bother me as much as some of the other more redundant episodes have. It like This one didn't feel like they were running out of stories or anything, uh, but it did feel like ground they've covered previously, whether it's Nog... Nog's hero worship, which I guess you could just call a character trait, but they had a whole episode where it supposedly was trying to break him of that habit. Mm-hmm. Um, or just the uh, st- marooned on a marooned on a planet, facing down uh, a bunch of Jem'Hadar with uh, lacking supplies. You know, they, they've done that before. Um, I actually thought the thing that really made this different and... I can't believe that I, I'm saying this is the inclusion of Quark, mm-hmm. <laughs> because at first I was just you know rolling my eyes so hard I could see the back of my head um, when he was showed up and he was like oh Grand Nagus. But at first I thought this was going to be a Ferengi episode and I Again, was not excited. Yeah. Um, but when he gets down there and he starts uh, being the voice of the other side, the other point of view of the Federation and of humans, I thought that stuff was really interesting. Yeah. And especially talking to Nog, because Nog has that level of hero worship, uh, and Quark is kind of trying to pull him back to the other side. Not necessarily ground him, because the stuff that he's saying is pretty equally as uh, uh, inflammatory. Um, not necessarily wrong, but he's not he's not exactly riding the line, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a callback yeah, to... Thought- uh, and if you remember all the way back in the second season, the Jemadar, where the Jemadar introduced, Quark plays a, a similar role. It's where him and Cisco go camping with the boys. And oh yes, Quark yeah. has a similar perspective at that point. He and Cisco have a similar conversation about why humans and Ferengi don't see eye to eye. It's it's not exactly the same situation here because here it's it's about dying in battle, and they they aren't aware of that fact of that episode. But it's it's a similar thing, and it's a trait that we both kind of liked, where Quark serves as a having like a realistic point of view about things mm-hmm. where he's not mm-hmm. a goofy corny Ferengi point of view. They, they, they take the Ferengi point of view and they just make it more of a believable 
um, like a believable selfishness, I, I suppose would be the way to look at it, where he, he's voicing the selfishness of wanting people to stay alive that he knows and like not thinking that the, the risk is worth it. And I, I, I think that he's sort of vital to it. And it's a role that I wish Quirk played more often in the series, but yeah. when he does it, it's, it's effective. Yeah. Um, I like that he isn't, uh, he's not trying to, um, present a sort of middle of the road viewpoint either where it's not like there's there's no like uh uh pull back at the end of his statement where it's like humans are they seem nice but as soon as they you know are backed into a corner they they're more monstrous than even the most dangerous klingon he doesn't pull back and be like you know but these humans are 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 good people or something like that right. he's just like nope doesn't moderate it. out yeah um, although his yeah, his I, ending is a subtle reversal of his opinion there right where he mm-hmm. He protects uh, Nog at the very end, and he does what he was saying Nog should not do the entire time. And they do it without dialogue, which is subtle for Star Trek. They don't have Mm. Quark go, you know, you changed my mind. I'm going to stand here and protect you. (laughs) They do it entirely through visual context and him just shooting the Jem'Hadar soldier at the very end. And that's nice when Star Trek does things like that. And it avoids the very nineties trope of like, now I'm going to explain to the idiot audience why he did that. Um, but I, I, I think that's why I, I really like this episode is because, well, I do think it's somewhat redundant in content. I think the perspective is different here because yeah, yeah. I think it's most similar to rocks and shoals, but rocks and shoals is all about knowing the enemy's point of view and the moral quandary that comes from knowing what the Vorta is trying to do in that episode. Right. This, the Jem'Hadar don't have a personality. The Dominion don't have a personality in this. They're just a force of like zombies that are coming Mm -hmm. for people. And so it's purely how our Star Trek characters are feeling about this situation. And uh, just to get it out of the way, I think this is maybe one of the greatest directed episodes of Star Trek that's ever been done. It's like, Mm. I love the sound design. I love the way it looks. They're basically on a cave set that's maybe like 15 feet by 15 feet the entire time, but it mm-hmm. never looks old and it never looks silly. And they're really effective right. at just like shooting on this set. There's a lot of weird camera angles in it. The sound effects are really great. They have like crickets in the background, like space crickets, <laughs> which is really strange. And the battle scene is maybe the best battle scene like hand-to-hand combat that any of the shows have ever done to this yeah point. yeah by far that 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 uh that final battle is was really well done especially given what you're saying where it's not a lot of room it's not a lot of people but they make it look fairly fairly epic yeah my 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 one problem is actually the um the scale of things are, is kind of weird in this where it's a hundred people yeah. guarding a planet apparently and the dominion have a hard time taking it back for some yeah, reason. Yeah. Uh, but w- once you get around that, I think that's really my only like technical nitpick, uh, which is purely production-based, it seems. But it- it's wonky that they are, the Dominion, if this place is so important to them, they don't just bombard them with soldiers to take it back. Right, yeah. It, like, the uh, they they kind of... They, they set it up so it, it, it feels a little less awkward, but it, it's... Once you start thinking about it, it it's still kind of weird where it's like... They, it, there's only... In order for them to get point to, to to us from their base, they have to go through this valley, specific valley that is uh, got mountains on either side of it. 
And based on the the scale of what's hap- happening here, the valley is like thirty five feet wide. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's and and they finally and also it's the future, and they're still sending guys on foot to do hand to hand combat. They've got lasers. Yeah, they've got they, they've got still shooting torpedoes. at each other. Yeah, they- <laughs> yeah, they've got lasers and torpedoes, and they're still shooting at each other from like five feet away. Are they are they in the cave? I think they're in a cave or something, right? Which is maybe a little bit of uh, something, but it's still it's sort like- of. I, I'm not even totally sure. Like part of it's a cave, but it, I thought the 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 last stand was sort of like outside it. But mm-hmm. whatever, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's, I think the point still stands that if the Dominion thought this was so important uh, that they were upset that Starfleet was getting access to their communications relay, just blow the planet to shit, basically, would be yeah. my solution. Yeah, you could have thrown in a line about it being too valuable of a, a piece of thing product, to yeah. completely yeah. destroy or something, so they need to do it on foot, but whatever, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. That's that's my only nitpick, because I really like this one. I think that it's... um. It's maybe the darkest hour of Star Trek DS9 in a lot of ways. I think it's even darker than Pale Moonlight. Um, I think that the emotions of it are handled a little bit better than Pale Moonlight, where Pale Moonlight felt a little bit theatrical to me. And I think that this Mm -hmm. feels more cinematic and believable, all the way down to like Quark's not saying what's going on, but you just have to interpret what his sort of thing is, Nog losing his leg, um, which is... Which is really like in modern TV, Nog would die in this episode. I think a lot of people might die in this episode if it was sort of Mm -hmm. a a modern TV series that was halfway through its final season. Um, But outside of that, I think it's really, I think it's really great. And I think it's really emotional. And it's got so many good scenes in it, I think, where Worf is talking to Cisco at the very end uh, Mm -hmm. about like how glorious of a victory it was. Yeah, I I don't know. What what do you want to say about it? Um, Yeah, I. I I, th- I think I'm on the same page with you. Um, yeah, I I I, keep, I just keep thinking about all the quark stuff. That stuff worked. It that stuff worked really well, and also like the store the soldier to soldier story stuff. I thought worked a lot better than I thought. Good guest stars like the, in this. Who yeah. they veer? They could have veered, and maybe they do veer a little close to like uh, tropey, silly eighty action star. Uh, soldiers, but I think that, that one guy does. Yeah, the guy with the the, uh, the Gemhardt necklace, yeah. the catch yourself white ne- or Tuco. Are you talking about from uh, Breaking Bad? The guy with the necklace. Yeah, yeah. with the necklace. I yeah. thought Tuco was good. I thought you know he's that guy. I'm surprised that that guy is not in more stuff because he's always good. He does. Um, he brings um he brings the uh he he brings the intensity. I guess would be a way to describe yeah. him. I, I think all the soldiers are good. I think that they. I I think the setup is really cool because it's you're so used to the star trek episodes where everyone beams down and everyone they meet are the star trek professionals and they do a good job here of being like you know it's been five months of like continuous assault and we like everyone is grumpy with each other people are yelling at each other it's all it's all falling apart at the seams and our characters walk into that situation at that point yeah that this is the kind of um dominion war episode that i was waiting for something where it's it's not explicitly like grand movements of of each party where it's like you know Wei Yun and Damar coordinating the taking of an entire planet or something you know it, it, where with a uh, one of those 35 ship shots yeah you know, whatever crashing it's, into it's each a, other it's a yeah. small story about how the war is affecting soldiers on a personal basis and uh you know taking I I really liked I really liked 
Cisco's arc in this, going from uh, talking about the names on the board and how he used to read all the names, but now there's just too many of them, to actually putting him down there with the people who are actually dying and giving him a new perspective on that and, uh, and then having him come out the other side as someone who's has obviously a newfound respect for all these people who are getting killed. Yeah. They're not they're uh, not just names by the end of the episode yeah. anymore and uh he owes it to them to remember them for what they are. I oddly yeah. oddly telling that to Kira who seems like the wrong character to tell yeah, that. Yeah, I know. To. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of all the people to tell that to, she's not the one. I, I think it should have bookended with Odo because Odo's in the beginning and I I think that it makes sense for that conversation to continue with Odo, but it's it's strange that they include Kira as the person he explains I, that to. I would also argue that it might be makes sense to have Worf have that conversation because Worf, even though he's grown from just a hipster Klingon, he still has that hipster Klingon aspect to him where he could be the one who's saying like, oh, it was a victory for the victory for the ages. They'll write songs about this and I, I, and focus on the victory more than the people, the people who are killed and and have that as an opportunity for Cisco to be like, listen, it's not about, it's not about the victory. It's, you know, we can't forget the people who have made it happen, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I, I, I wonder, I, I guess my problem with, if it was war receiving that is that the Klingons tend to revere the dead. Like they, they tend sure. to really, they, they find honor in the sacrifice of dying. So I feel like Worf wouldn't be skimming over the, the people in that way. I think that true. Yeah. I, I don't know who it would be. I, I don't know if it's like maybe an admiral or something would make more sense there. Someone, some sort of like uh, bean counter who comes in and is telling Cisco about this, and he sort of like snaps at them about it. But I, I think it's fine. It's a really minor nitpick that is Kira, but it's, it is a good arc for him. And I think that Cisco gets a lot of um, interesting pushback from Quark in particular, and a lot of other people about like him saying like you wouldn't send uh, Nog out there if Nog was Jake, and Jake is not a Starfleet officer as his comeback. Mm. But it's certainly sets him up and it's another subtle thing of he checks in on nog during the end of it he doesn't complain about being sad about it or anything he he continues to do his captain uh of starfleet routine but he does check in on nog and talks to quark about it and you can just see that it's um it's something that affected him obviously even though it's only nog losing his leg instead of his life but it is what it is what if it was vic fontaine that he had the conversation (laughs) with and vic was like man Sounds like it got pretty wild out there. You know, I was going to join up and go into the service, but my knee's weird, so they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> Bone spurs. So I'd just stay here and comfort everyone's wife. I, he's like, let me tell you, Pally, about uh, this hard, uh, t- the trumpet player completely out off key this entire night. Yeah. It, was a, it, was a real, it was a real siege of my I own. was in the service, spent my whole, <laughs> spent the entire war in France singing songs for the locals. <laughs> You give me fever. Um, I tell you, I've never seen a front line as hairy as the front line of the of the queue to get into the show that I was playing <laughs> that night. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I, I think there's just a decent amount going on in here. The Dex uh, thing with her engineer is fine. It it, it suffers a little bit from engineer that. Uh, is the kid from Lost in Space, by the way. Oh, is he? Interesting. Yeah, the original Lost in Space. Yeah, oh, he's he's still out there, I guess, doing work. Still out there. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. guess we know how that show ended. He signed up for Starfleet and was killed in battle. 
I I think maybe the biggest thing that drew me out of this is that the only people who die are the people that are down there from the start. Like, they're all the characters who don't need to return to the show, uh, getting shot and mm. killed at the very end. What did you think of um, Cisco getting knocked down and then waking up with the battle one? I thought that was strange that they never even included an explanation of how things turned around. You're just supposed to assume right as Cisco is in the crosshairs of this Jem'Hadar that everything turned out all right. Yeah, it was fine. It yeah. reminded me of uh, before they had their money to do this stuff on a large scale. Uh, the first big battle in Game of Thrones, they do the whole thing from um, Tyrion's perspective, and he gets knocked out like right. 10 minutes right. into it, and then he wakes <laughs> yeah. up. He wakes up, and everything's just destroyed, and they're like, what happened? You were asleep the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is reminiscent uh, of that. It's a, it's a great budget saver, I guess. Oh, yeah, All yeah. Right. And it, I thought it was fine. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think you need a big explanation as to how they ended up winning it's just that's how it shook out you know yep yep they held they held it was their only their, their order i think it's um it's neat that like you were saying it's a, the the dominion war episode that you kind of feel has been missing for a while like yeah the dominion war comes in and it uh makes such brief appearances every once in a while that you never really feel the impact of what the war means for the people who are fighting it like you you never really see any sort of psychological ramifications of any of the stuff it's usually a space battle and they take a planet or it's dealing with some kind of dominion subterfuge or something like that and i think it was important that they do this and i think it, the episode itself almost kind of feels like a turning point in the war to me because it doesn't feel like they can go much lower than that it, it feels like on even on a small scale this represents like the it, it almost feels like if, if the Dominion had broken through this front, that almost feels like it's the end of the Dominion War for Starfleet on some level. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels vital that they hold this at this point. And I really like that about it, it, that it feels like it's this really important turning point in the war, even though it's such a small stakes issue that they're dealing with. And I think that it's um, it's nice to have that release from the war because they don't touch on it all that often when they do i think they have to do it well and they end up usually doing it well as they do here yeah it's it's nice it's nice to have something that's more than just someone offhandedly mentioning that the dominion are still out there yeah or or uh beta z is captured dealing, yeah dealing with something silly uh where it's like oh jake has ab- accidentally released a very sexy robot but uh, we have to deal with this but also remember that there's a war happening mm-hmm it's um because I, I think they've been hitting this theme fairly reliably, which is that um like the the Star Trek ethos is always going to kind of run into a problem of even if it hasn't been it's not a pacifist show or anything like that. Like I don't think any of the series have ever been totally pacifist, but Quark kind of represents a form of pacifism here, where he's like, none of this is worth it. I would just crack a deal with them, no matter what the terms are, just so that we don't have I- to live through this. Yeah, I think you. I I think it depends. I don't know if I would necessarily call it pacifism because it's maybe maybe I I don't think he has an aversion to war. I think he's just uh, it's it's a it's about the bottom line still. You Mm -hmm. know, Um, it's not war is good for the bottom line. As as, I think the Ferengi have a rule of acquisition about war is good for business or something like that too. That they mentioned, yeah. But it's like it's it's. I don't think for him it's about saving lo- saving everybody's life as much as it is saving his own life. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and if you can do that by making a deal, then that that's great. And I I really did like that scene when when he's um talking to getting Nog. into yeah talking to Nog and and getting into it and saying what the Ferengi would do and how they would oh they would have cracked they would have made a deal long ago and none of this would have happened because it doesn't yeah it doesn't feel like it's it doesn't feel like he's doing that because it's the moral or right thing to do. It's just um uh, how how to how to most profit from the situation or or lose the least at, at least. Yeah, yeah. Cuz I I I think that um we don't really praise them a lot, but I think that it's I think that that scene where Quark is talking to Nog is maybe one of the best performed scenes that the show has ever done. It's with two mm-hmm. fairly ridiculous characters. Like the Frangi are fairly ridiculous. Uh these two do a good job with them, but they take this sort of cornball race and they make them feel real and effective. And I think that it's a, it's an important Nog episode at the same time, too, because he is fully sort of turning his back on uh, Quark and the Ferengi ways and everything. And the source mm-hmm. of their conflict is the fact that he wants to be seen as a hero in the Starfleet uh, view of things. And I don't know. I think it's really, like, subtle. They're not, like, squawking like Ferengi usually do. Like, it's a very right. nuanced conversation about what Quark wants and what Nog wants and the uh, the conflict that they both have about it. And, like, it makes total sense in context. I, I just think the scripting there and the performances are really strong from both of them. And I think that they do a, a really effective job of portraying that moment in time for them. Yeah, and it, it is kind of a... They use Quark to really deliver one of the more damning reads on Starfleet, I think, that they've had up to this point, uh, where he says, like, this isn't the Starfleet you know, and then he gets into the human thing. It 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 very much feels like it is it is it is a well-written speech from someone who is dealing with the Federation because they have to, not because they necessarily like them yep. or think that they're good. And I think it's it's a very subtle... It's very... It, oh, I even, I even read it as... Um... I read it as Quark seeing the ugly side of humanity that Star Trek is kind of loath to admit still exists at that right, point. Yeah. Right, that's 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 what I mean by by it being an indictment of Starfleet. I mean like a metatextual indictment of yeah, Starfleet. Yeah. But uh, but on top of the idea that even though you know having him say this isn't the Starfleet you know is a little on the nose, but I think it's really subtly well written because of who it's coming from and it feels like it's a really honest thing for him to say uh without being without without him straight up coming out and being like the only reason I deal with them is cuz I have to not because I like them right. you know yep. they they have him say all that stuff and you can really infer from it that that's what his position is it's 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 it the, the thing that surprised me the most about this episode is how much of that how well written that stuff was because I feel like episodes like this, for most shows, the minute you have a soldier who's been, you know, you've got a character who's a soldier who's been stuck here for five months and you give him, like, a page of dialogue, that dialogue's going to be pretty hokey and it's not necessarily going to land as emotionally as you think it's going to. Um, but I thought all of those scenes were, were really good. I thought the stuff that the, the uh, Quark stuff was great. I thought the stuff, the story that Tuco tells, yeah, I don't know that's, if... That's if, very good, Tuco's story, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if if it's if it's him acting the shit out of it, or if it's legitimately well written, or if it's a combination of both. Well, it's another um, it's another thing of the writing is better there because he doesn't end that speech with 
and now I feel terrible because he's dead. Like it, it yeah. you know, it, it just lets you fill in the blanks in a way that's really mature. And sometimes Star Trek doesn't do that. Some sometimes Star Trek is like, you must get the points. I'm going to tell you what the point is. Yeah, and I thought Bashir had a lot of great stuff. Well, he didn't have a lot of great stuff, but the stuff he did have was good. Um, He's more of a reactionary character uh, to everything in this, and uh, like he he re- he's reacting to Dax and he's reacting to Tuco and everything. But he, I think right. he handles the Tuco scene really well, uh, like as an actor, like the the acting of that role where Tuco pulls the gun on him. Uh, I think Bashir mm-hmm. handles that really interestingly as a character where he he felt like he's come a long way from first season Bashir, who wouldn't handle that so calmly and things right. like that. So it's well, nice to see that the that- war has changed him a little bit. He's got that great line later when he, they're all setting up on the line, and, and I think it's Tuco says something about, well, maybe he doesn't. I can't remember if he says something or if he if Bashir volunteers it himself about getting into this for saving lives. Oh yeah, because uh, Tuco's like, "You look like you've done this before," and he's like, "Yeah, unfortunately, I have." Yeah, and I yeah. thought th- I thought that was you know it was it was a little bit it was, but I thought it was nice. I thought it was well done. Cisco had a lot of great stuff too. Um, I can't remember it specifically, but he had some some good small speeches that I thought were they felt of a piece to this kind of story, but they didn't feel, you know, hacky. Yeah, you know, it, it was because you know I'm in the middle of writing bloody hell right now, so I, I was I was my ears were kind of open for this kind of dialogue because I was like I'm trying to I'm I, I I'm trying to have dialogue in this war comic, but I don't want it to come off as really lame. So I'm trying to pay attention to what they're doing and seeing if it's working or not. And I wasn't expecting it to work, and it worked really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's pretty good praise. I, I think that the um, I think I think all of their dialogue works because it's mostly underwritten in an effective way, where no one's yeah. no one's over talking about what they're doing. And I think that all of the characters have. The 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 scene and the setup for it is so well executed that all of the characters feel extremely natural in how their reactions pan out from it. Like mm-hmm. even Dax just talks about like I have all these memories of fear and knowing what fighting is about and everything like that, but it's still not equal to the real thing of being there. Like there's you you can't empathize enough with the situation until you're actually in it, which is a really interesting right. take from Dax. Quark obviously has this thing about like the selfishness boils down to him turning the corner and sort of saving uh, Nog at the at the very end, and he has a realization. Bashir's thing is he is he he started that he became a doctor to save lives, and the only way to save lives is to kill people. Is his conflict in this? Like the right. the only way out of this is to kill people who are threatening their lives. So they all have really believable problems it's not one of those episodes where the b plot you're like why is this character doing this at this point like what's going on with that i just think that the the situation is so natural for all of them all of their writing and all their dialogue and all their choices even if they don't have choices all the things that they end up doing are really like oh that's that's like a perfect bashir thing oh that's a perfect dax thing oh that's a perfect quark Mm. thing it's a perfect cisco thing and i think that's just to the uh, the script's credit yeah the dax stuff too i thought was the best use of her so far um, putting her in that position where she, yeah she has she has no experience doing this but her other hosts or, uh, her uh, yeah her other hosts did um, I thought that was interesting that's not something that they I don't feel like they really did that with Jedzia that often no not really um, and so it's a good I thought it was a good use of her there yeah yeah uh, it, I'm just happy that the B plot of this wasn't every couple minutes cutting back to Deep Space Nine to see 
how uh, Rom's audition was. <laughs> He's typing up some charts to uh, to handle that. Yeah, yeah. Him and his uh, Lita are working on uh, you know a new a new song for the band. <laughs> <laughs> with with uh, Miles O'Brien on the bass, everyone. Miles O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> but they, Rom, this is ridiculous. I've got work to do. They even pay the uh, the Vic Fontaine stuff off fairly nicely and subtly. I think where Bashir plays the music during the final yes. sequence, which yeah. I think to me, I interpret that as even more of the subtle of um, the Dominion are a force that threatens Starfleet's way of life and. As this battle for the future of whether Starfleet or the Federation exists anymore, they are celebrating their culture. At that point, like they're they're still the the music just kind of represents the like this is what we are, this is what we stand for, and this is what we're here to protect. And it's just a really nice callback to the, to the start of to the start of it, and it it makes the whole thing mesh really nicely. Yeah, it's like when they play the Beastie Boys in Star Trek Beyond. Yes, yeah, exactly the same. It's exactly. <laughs> it kind of is actually <laughs> or the um what's the one that drives you nuts more about the star trek um when he's in the on the motorcycle or something oh yeah in the first one yeah yeah the, the yeah. first the 2009 when he steals the car the 400 year old car <laughs> it's a and listens and the, to the <laughs> listens to the uh 350 year old music it's the uh what's the, what song is it do you remember i can't remember the, uh sabotage sabotage but it's, it's not it's the um, same it's the same one they use in the in the third movie the only the only acceptable song to listen to is uh red barquetta by rush i think and that's <laughs> <laughs> see i would appreciate it so much more if it was something like a, a less on the nose and if it was like here's young captain kirk he's stealing a car tearing ass through the plains of iowa listening to uh shaken by eddie money (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a little uh yeah when it's when it's clearly like the music of the filmmaker or whatever i think is is the problem that you you run into there although i guess uh this is the same thing iris steven bear loves crooners so he's gonna put some crooner music at least it makes sense in this context because there's a holodeck element and it's not just you know if you (laughs) That we can save this conversation for when we cover these movies, but it's 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 akin to me of someone stealing their stepdad's four hundred year old car, a, uh, and then blasting like Tchaikovsky or something, yeah, and feeling yeah. really rad about blasting Tchaikovsky. I don't know. Yep, yep. Let's. Uh, I guess we can. Um, Nog's thing would be the only the final beat to this. Oh yeah. Um. What'd you think about Nog losing his leg? Was was there? Anything? I thought it was great. Yeah, you liked it. Yeah, I I am. Uh, you know, I I know what you're saying about killing characters. <clears throat> Excuse me, but we've ta- we've talked before how I feel like killing characters is uh, seems to be the only thing people understand in modern television as uh, how to hurt them. Like it's it's very rare that you have a character get hurt. And then have to live with whatever has hurt them. It's more a lot more common for them to just be killed, right? Um, so actually, having a character get shot and then have his leg removed, which I'm sure next episode they're going to be like, "Oh, good the ampu- the uh, the cybernetic implant took, and he's got a new leg again." Do yep. they do that? Yeah. Uh, no. Well, they that. they deal with it actually. They have an episode. Okay. Good. Fo- well, that's good. On it. Yeah. 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 Well, that's great then because I think that stuff is rare. In a lot of these shows, uh, like imagine if, imagine if halfway through the the seventh season of of, uh, of TNG, 
uh, Riker got his arm cut off or something. <laughs> You know, <laughs> and Data just gives him one of his uh, robot arms, and he's walking around crushing yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's I think it's interesting. It it, it they go out of their it, way to say that the implant isn't going to work on him. Bashir is very yeah. very cavalier in uh, stating that that he his nerves are so shot that he cannot have a prosthetic that uh, that would fit the twenty fourth century of prosthetics, which you you feel like losing a limb in that era probably isn't all that bad. But here it is apparently. Yeah, and I think that's more in a, a more effective way of bringing the war home than like killing Dax or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's yeah. like when you've got something like that, you can sort of sweep it under the rug, and uh, yeah, you can dip in on it when you need to. But it, it, it's kind of a one and done situation. But if you've got someone who is irreparably changed, then you're always going to see the reminder of, of how things have changed and how people are getting hurt and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I, I think they had to do something. I like, I like the choice here of having him lose his leg uh, because I think that they had to have some kind of ramification happen to one of our main or like major cast characters. Mm-hmm. You can't just have all of the people who were there first get shot and killed and then expect anything to kind of take away to last from it. But uh, right. I, I think that they... I think Aaron Eisenberg and Armin Shimmerman are both really good in this. I think that it's a nice Ferengi episode for them in terms of just being, uh, if it's about the Ferengi at all, I think that they both do a really good job. And I, um, Oh, sorry. No, go that, ahead. That, that, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, I don't know why there aren't more Ferengi in Starfleet. Like, I don't know why they're not actively trying to recruit them, because I feel like their their listening ability would come in Quite handy, as it does here when <laughs> Quark gets the drop on that Jem Hadar because he can hear him coming. Yeah, or they just use you know? Nog as a tricorder because he can hear where the Jem Hadar are. Yep, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I guess... The profit thing stands in the way. They don't get paid, so they're not... Uh, sure, you know. and they also, they don't have that good... At, well, I guess it depends on how that you can attune your ears to certain sounds or whatever, but mm-hmm. I was going to say, they're probably better used on the ground in an infantry capacity than like on a starship, but... They're smaller. They're like odd job in uh, 007. They're hard to shoot in the. Yes. <laughs> they're just below. They're constantly. Everybody. They're kneeling the entire time, running around <laughs> kneeling in in the, the the facility level of Goldeneye. It's that auto target pulls your uh, your cursor right into the middle of the screen. Odd job just pistols, goes right on Pistols you. only. Yep. Pistols only. Golden gun. One hit kill. Let's see. Uh, I think that's it. We're going to take a break. We're going to play an audio clip. Me and Clay will come back. We'll read some patron thoughts about the siege of AR five five eight. Captain. Yes, Mr. Worf. The USS Veracruz has entered orbit. They're beaming down troop replacements and an engineering crew. What about our people? Dr. Bashir is aboard the Veracruz with Nog and the rest of the wounded. They will be taken to a hospital on Starbase 371. Good. I'll return to the Defiant shortly. This was a great victory. One worthy of story. And song. It cost enough. All right, everybody. So if you enjoyed the content today, you can support the show at patreon.com slash the Penske file. A couple dollars a month gets you extra stuff, extra podcasts, extra access to some videos and stuff that we do. All that good stuff. Uh, we're doing the Black Mirrors right now. You get to vote on Real Ripe and Real Rotten. There's a whole bunch of perks. So go to patreon.com slash the Penske file. And as always, our Captain Tier supporters get a shout out. Special thanks go to Andrew Cherlog. Ben Douglas, Captain Quark, Cardinal Doomsday, Christian Michaels, Christian Pouch, David Mo- uh, Darth Mosk, David Beardmore, David K, Dwayne Hackett, Eric Johnson, I.C. Unicorns, Yarpy, Joint Mango, Kevin Rice, Kyle Barrett, Matt Cutler, Matt Ross, Mike Burnett, Nathan Elliott, Neil Brennan, Nick Sergi, Robert Cummins, Russell Elledge, 
Samuel Custer, Grim Santo, Sean Spinobi, Tarkley, Fault 13 Hero, and Willie Yates. Thank you very much for supporting the show. It means the world to us. So let's go to patron thoughts. If you're a patron, you can leave your thoughts about upcoming episodes and we read them. Our first comment comes from, control F, where are we? Alex Bogut says, The Siege of AR-558, the quintessential war story. For me, this was the episode that truly brought home the fact that war is hell rather than CGI ships firing at one another, along with the pale moonlight, a growing up episode for Star Trek. Sam Luca Wessel says, Ground camp combat is always kind of off-brand in Trek, but this one does a better job than most of, uh, than most of integrating the high technology with the blood and the sweat. Matt Ross says, Welcome to in-country, Starfleet, Vietnam, Hamburger Hill, and Zulu Dawn all combined. If the last episode had the old soldier cliche, this says every war cliche except for the guy pining for his mom's spaghetti in Brooklyn. That said, I still find it a nice view of what the Starfleet people look like at war. Quark's line about how humans are just a veneer of civilization is up there with the root beer quote. Otherwise, I actually like it more than the root beer quote, but anyway. Uh, otherwise, we get Vargas, the PTSD guy, Reese, the stone-cold killer collecting tubes, and the sharp knife. Kellen, the sort of able engineer, Bill Mummy, both of the Twilight Zone and B5. Luckily, Esri has all the knowledge in her USB drive to assist. The mines were an intriguing and totally barbaric weapon that no one would expect of the Jem'Hadar. Nog losing a limb a bit of surprise, but not a surprise of Quark shooting. Now if we could just get rid of Rom singing, considering Gronenchek can actually sing, and Vic Fontaine bit, it would be a stellar and the Vic Fontaine bit, it would be a stellar episode. That scene felt extremely tacked on. I still enjoy it and even watch it when the mood for cliche wars and consider it one of the best of ZS9. I always wondered, what if Fontaine was a Metallica program or Elton John? What music would you play at the end? Uh, we didn't Probably talk about Metallica the mines. Metallica or Elton John. <laughs> Your war, war is hell. Uh, we didn't talk about the mines at all, and Matt brought them up. Um, First of all, I would like to say I don't. I would not lump this in with cliche war stuff because first of all hamburger hill is a terrible movie and has (laughs) all of the things that i said about that do work about this do not work in that because that movie is like a bunch of people sitting around in vietnam costumes saying terrible dialogue i've never seen it so i can't comment i'll take it's terrible dave dave will deny this up and down well he also likes dune so yeah (laughs) dave will deny dave will deny this up and down but me and jim remember very clearly him talking about how good of a movie Hamburger Hill was. Mm. And neither of us had seen it. So one year when we did our uh, 24-hour movie marathon, we watched Hamburger Hill, and it was so fucking bad. <laughs> and then we called him on it afterwards, and he's like, I've never said that. I've never seen that movie. And I was like, oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Cover your tracks. Cover your tracks. Uh, the Mines. What would you think about The Mines? Uh, I thought they were f- I thought they were fine. Um, I like the, the, the scene of their reveal. Is really yeah. cool, I think. Um, outside the, of that, I think that they are just a script necessity that sure. has to happen. Yeah, yeah. They're they're. Um, I actually hadn't thought about using them to blow as a weapon against them. Um, like it did. I I wasn't totally tracking what the deal with the mines was because I didn't exactly get how they were there but you couldn't see them and sometimes they didn't blow up yeah they're in subspace they're just totally random yeah. just to make it all the more stressful while you're back there. Yeah. yeah i mean that is pretty fucking stressful I, 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 it, it almost feels like it's too heavy-handed of a war cliche it's like anything yeah. could happen at any time these mines well are it's visible. also it's also it's not like there was like five of them right you know yeah, it was a like lot. there was, there's third, there was like yeah. 30 to 40 of them in a very tight space <laughs> so they could have just set them all off at once and killed everybody there yes yeah um 
but yeah, I, I, it hadn't occurred to me that they were going to use those as the, as a way to take everybody out. I had, I knew something like that was going to happen. Um, but yeah, I thought they were fine. I thought, yeah, the scene where they all show up was kind of cool. Uh, where it shows up right next to Tuco's head was yeah, good. Yeah, turns around slowly to look at it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I did like the line, it may be the most heavy-handed line in the episode where uh, one, I, I don't know if it's Necklace Guy or whoever it was, was like, I, weren't, we just, weren't we just talking shit about these things? Now we're going to use them as a, a, to, to kill for our side or something? Oh, like Dex says that. De- Dex, oh, it's Dex. Yeah, okay. Dex says that. Like, I can't believe we're going to use these weapons that we were just bitching about to kill our enemies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah that was that was good if a little heavy-handed but you know i thought it worked it is it's it's heavy-handed because her um bashir's line was right before bashir's line probably after that bashir's line after that is better and more subtle about like this isn't what i signed up to starfleet to do it's just right. the, the compromises that they're all making uh are are better brought to light by bashir than dax David Beardmore says, definitely one of the core DS9 episodes that distinguishes it from other series. They did a really good job of showing a realistic way that fighting would take place in the future. Quirk's scene where he talks with Nog about humans really brings the Roddenberry-esque trek back down to Earth. Bonus, I love seeing a young Tuco from Breaking Bad as a battle-hardened Vietnam soldier. Don't we all? Neil Brennan, it's right around now that the constraints of 1990s network TV start to constrain the show. Nowadays, Nog would have died. Still, a fine episode. Cool of Cisco to lecture Kira, a seasoned freedom fighter, on the nature of death and war at the end. Yeah. I might have stole I might have stole Neil's point there, but yeah, it is definitely. I think I noticed it while I was watching the the episode, but it's yeah, it is a. Um, I, I think the the weirdest thing about her is her reaction, where she she doesn't really give him the like, yeah, I know kind of mm-hmm. look. She 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 absorbs it. I think on a. Uh, I'm glad actually that she's not in this episode because mm. I feel like that would have been too much to have her who does have that point of view because you know you're gonna have to have a scene where she talks about it she, yeah and this I don't isn't as bad as the bajoran occupation five months try 50 years motherfucker. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think i think in season two or three they probably do that but i think it's a different episode altogether then so i um one startling and this is kind of related to this just because we have an odo scene and a kira scene where they're where they're by their by themselves even though they're not major characters in this episode Mm-hmm. I, I see a strong, I'm having, because of this rewatch, a strong mental break between, I, I think that post and pre Kira and Odo is like mm-hmm. the BCAD of the calendar years. It's like a, <laughs> because they, th- those characters don't really have scenes like they used to yeah. with other characters. Yeah. Like it, it feels really of a different time in the show where Cisco and Odo talk to each other. And right. it was it stuck out as so odd that they talk to each other here because it doesn't happen all that often. And I think it's really to the detriment of the show that they can't count on those characters. They can, but they choose not to write those characters having individual scenes and bouncing things off of each other because it, it limits the cast, I think, in a lot of ways. So I'm glad to see it here for what it was. And it's very strange that they have completely disappeared as though, you know, I like we've said before, it's not like their star-crossed love was the point of the show or the point of those characters for six seasons. And now that they're together, it's like, well, what else do you do with them? Right. It feels like, it feels still like they're pretty, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty well-established characters where this relationship should be kind of like a, a background element. Yeah, back, the, the relationship should be backgrounded to what they're going through, specifically Odo, because I think Odo is very important to what's going on here. But yeah, it's it's the same for both of them. Very strange. Agree. 
Christian Pouch says, The single best portrayal of ground combat in Star Trek, while you could nitpick the world to death, why are there no fixed gun emplacements, armored vehicles, etc., the episode sells the grittiness of war and how, even with all the technology you have at your disposal, it comes down to a lot of ugly, close-in fighting. Quark is used excellently as he brings a viewpoint that is simultaneously, simultaneously naive and insightful. The supporting Starfleet troops, while not having deep character explorations, do a lot with very little screen time. Nog represents well the countless young, eager men and women who go to war trying to do their job and paying a high price for it. More than the acting, the choreography and cinematography are great. The fighting is fast, intense, brutal, and well shot. Trek fight scenes tend to be awkward, and this is not. Music was great, too. Side note, in case you were wondering, this takes place on one of the several planets in the Chintaka system, which was taken by the Federation in Season 6's finale. Oh. So there is a uh, so they are holding the planet that they just recently took uh, is the the other way to say that. Uh, Dwayne Hackett, another winner for the season. I love episodes that show the horrors of war in a Star Trek universe. Up until now, it was largely CGI battles and one-off episode conflicts, but this episode sticks with you. I was even excited to see Bill Mummy in this episode, furthering the reconciliation between Star Trek and Babylon Five. Even though he does die in this episode, so that may not have been stating much. The episode was well-crafted for the resources they had and clearly a budget saver for some of the more costly episodes that have yet to come. Some criticisms. I do think the episode should have stuck more with Quark being the only civilian in the group. Having his full perspective may have resonated more. Additionally, I would have loved to see more ground tactics being used by the Jem'Hadar. Also, I feel that the Jem'Hadar should have been more imposing. (laughs) They seem weaker in the episode by comparison. All in all, a great episode featuring interesting use of tech resulting in a lot of death for glorified e- for a glorified email server. Two things that continue to bother me, though. The size of the force holding the planet and how did they move the Houdinis, and seeing them as one thing and moving them as another. Don't think too hard about it. Four out of five. Yeah. I, the the Jem Hadar's uh, ground attack strategy seems limited to either uh, walking quietly or running loudly. Yep. Yep. Although... It's tough. I th- I think if you dedicate too much time to their tactics, um, yeah, you yeah. lose something it, there. Like yeah, they gotta, are just supposed to be the zombie force that you can't stop. Right. Yeah. right. Uh, because you know, for as much as they're talked up, uh, Starfleet tends to have an easy time killing Jim Hadar. You know, for all of their <laughs> reputation as uh, brutal killing warriors, they're they're fairly easy to kill. They don't seem that difficult. It's like I've always said: when you introduce a super un- unkillable thing, and then eventually you add more of them. Uh, it has to be, uh, they can't, they have to either, either be, uh, there has to either be more of them or they have to be smarter, but they can't be both because that's too hard. Right. That's like the, uh, did you ever play Halo, the video game? No, no. Well, Halo starts off with the, you are fighting, uh, aliens that are like your equals kind of like they have the same ability mm-hmm. as you. So it's kind of like yeah. that. But then halfway through the game, you meet a new alien named the flood which are super easy to kill, but there's just like billions of them coming at mm-hmm. you. So it, it is kind of that thing. It's like the, the flood just charge at you, but they don't have human tactics, but there's just a lot of them on screen. So it's harder to kill, but you, you certainly can't combine both because that would be the ultimate enemy that you'd have to deal right. with. Samuel S. says, best depiction of combat in Star Trek that has ever been done. Episode reminded me of Rogue One a little bit. A small group of soldiers going up against a massive amount of adversity in order to achieve a goal that is seemingly impossible. I liked it a lot, but I don't love it, and I can't put my finger on why. I think it just doesn't feel very trekky, and I have a hard time buying that all of the main characters would survive. Four out of five. Cal Barrett with the last comment. I love that this episode begins with a trick opening, making you think that it'll be about Rom acting like an absolute plank for 45 minutes, only for it to turn into one of the darkest and grittiest episodes of Star Trek. That uh, plank joke is a Discord joke for everyone uh, who's wondering. So join the Discord channel. 
Everything works perfectly in the episode, and while Quark tagging along is a little contrived, I love his scenes when he gets to comment on the Federation. Those soldiers sure do look like they need a root beer. The music is great, both the score and the scene in which everyone is waiting for the Jem'Hadar to attack, but nothing but the sound of Vic Fontaine and some space cicadas acting as the soundtrack. That's one of my all-time favorite Star Trek scenes. I wonder if the episode should have ended with a scene between Sisko and Jake, considering the cautionary tale and what happens with Nog, but even without it, this episode is one of DS9's finest. I, I feel like if this if this was a show, a popular show that was happening now, you would have uh, a bunch of internet edits with different songs over that last scene. Yes, yeah. Like, could you imagine, like, Bashir coming out with a smile on his face, and it's just like, The Stroke by Billy Squire is blasting, and they're like, what's that? And he's like, it's just something I thought everyone needed to hear right now. Yeah, just like Sir Mix-a-Lot, uh, Baby Got Back or something. It's a cornerstone of, of culture. Thank you very much, patrons, for leaving your thoughts about the episode. It's I, a good one. I did. I did. I do like uh, Kyle n- n- uh, mentioning that it, it does. It is a head fake where it's like you thought this episode was going to be terrible. How many people turned it off? <laughs> yeah, just like I don't need to watch this. I got other things to not, do. That not only do they give you Rom auditioning for Vic Fontaine, but then they give you the second punch of uh, potentially the Grand Negus showing up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They wanted all the true, uh, the uh, the non not true fans to just abandon this. This is for the this is for the real people who stick with the show. Uh, thank you, patrons. Thank you very much for supporting the show and leaving your comments. Clay, what are you going to give Siege of AR five five eight on our scale of one to five? Mm. Do, do I, I think I? I don't know if I. What are you going to give it? I'm going to give it a five because yeah. I think this is a really affecting episode that um. Uh, I I personally think it gets a little bit dusty with the the Cisco and Worf scene at the end. I think that they, mm-hmm. I think it's a nice little scene that just sums up everything. Worf isn't overbearing about it, but you just get the sense of. I think it's the episode that really captures the Dominion War in the way that they want the show to do it. I think, and if someone were to say, "Show me one episode about the Dominion War," I think you would show this one, or I would show it, just because it. Even if you're unfamiliar with how long it's been and how many episodes have focused on it, I think that this is this captures what the show is trying to say about the war, I think, in the most effective way. Yeah. I am I I feel hard pressed not to give it a five. If it's not a five, it's a really high four. Um Mm. What didn't you what I guess what didn't you like about it that would knock it down from a five for I, you? I I guess it's just that it 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 took longer to get me there than I thought it would, mm-hmm. or th- than it usually does for the fives. You know, it fe- the fives for me. I feel like by the end of the uh, of the cold open, you're kind of in it already. Yeah. Um, this one they do the Vic Fontaine thing, and then they've got the quark on the blah blah blah. So I on in, on second watch, I probably would would give it a higher mark. Ugh. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, fine. I'll give it a five. Give it a five as well. I would. Um, I guess the other. I don't have the list in front of me, but I think if I was like looking at a top ten list for DS Nine for me, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure this is a top ten episode. I think. Yeah, this is definitely an episode I would probably tell people to watch. Yeah, um, it's vital to the. If you do uh, another thing, to, it's if you're doing a curated list, would you watch this episode? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's it's really interesting if you compare. Some of these episodes, the must-watch episodes to 
TNG must-watch episodes? Because if you go down the list, the TNG must-watch episodes are usually fairly high concept mm-hmm. uh, because of the episodic nature of the show. It's like, oh, yeah, this is the one where the ship keeps blowing up. Or, oh, this is the one where... Tasha Yar falls in love with uh, Shooter McGavin. Right, this one's Enterprise like this is the her. one where the uh, the crew's trapped on a plant with Jen Jem Hadar. You go, wait a minute, is that uh, which of the seventeen episodes is yeah. is that in TS Nine? Yeah, yeah. This this one, it's like the crew's trapped on a planet, and they wait. Yes, Jem Hadar are there. Quark is there talking about humans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, uh, this doesn't this doesn't sound super good. No, trust me, it's great. No, it's uh, it's a lot subtler of a of a great episode than I think traditionally a fives are i think yeah yeah i i 100 agree to me making a best of tng list is kind of, like if i have the list it's very easy for me to go through and make that list to be like these are these are my 10 favorite episodes ds9 is a little bit trickier for me even down to the point of i sometimes don't remember what the episode is titled that they that mm-hmm. they kind of do uh like that i lose track of them that way i think that tng's high concept stuff works better for episode titles because you remember it more easily but yeah it's um it's tough. Uh, it, it is just the nature of how DS9 tells its stories that it's, it's, I think I said this at the start of our DS9 coverage, DS9's highs are lower than TNG's, I think, in a lot of ways, like a, on an episode by episode basis. But I think that they, they're more consistent within themselves. Like the, the best of sure. DS9 are all kind of the same uh, thing in a, in a positive way, not a negative way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I think that's it. Thank you, patrons. So we're both going to give it fives. I'll write it down. It's our first five of season seven for both of us. So that's a something to celebrate. I really like the episode. I think Clay does too. Um, but I guess that's it. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for listening. You can check out patreon.com slash the Penske file if you want to support us financially. It's much appreciated. Otherwise, Facebook, Twitter, Discord is all down below. If you want to get the inside jokes like what a plank is, go to Discord and fill yourself in. Clay, anything you want to say? Um... No, no, I don't think I got anything to plug. So we have, uh, we're going to try to do a Halloween special for Real Ripe and Real Rotten. So we'll work on that. Hopefully that comes out. Badass will come back next week uh, or this week, I think, when this episode comes out. So you can look forward to that. Although I'm putting, uh, I might be putting pressure on Clay with that one. I don't know. I haven't talked about it. I'm just assuming. Uh, but Badass will be back when it's back. Real Ripe will be back with some Halloween stuff. And then uh, our Black Mirror coverage should wrap up this month as well so on patreon thank you very much guys for listening thank you for supporting the show we'll see you later